This episode of All Things History with Amhiza was made in association with the University of Manitoba History Students Association. The University of Manitoba campuses are located on original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Ojibwe Cree, Dakota, and Dane peoples and is the homeland of the Métis Nation. We respect the treaties that were made on these territories, we acknowledge the harms and the mistakes of the past, and we dedicate ourselves to move forward in partnership with Indigenous communities in the spirit of reconciliation and collaboration. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of All Things History with Amhiza. I am your host, Celeste Petrick, and today we are discussing why it is important to learn history and take history classes with Professor George Beery. Welcome, Professor, uh, and thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. How has your summer been so far, Professor? It's been fun. It's been exciting. It's been busy. I'm currently teaching a course called History of the 30 Years Crisis, uh, so that's been fun. And uh, I later going to perform in a fringe festival in Edmonton, Alberta, and that's going to be fun too. And I recently got news that I'm going to be a full-time instructor at University of Manitoba starting in the uh, fall. So that's been very exciting news. So that's yeah, amazing. It's been a good summer. Yeah. Excellent. Well, to dive right in, uh, we know each other from this past year. I had taken American history with you, and that was an all-year course, a six-credit-hour course. So we had mm -hmm. gone through all of the lockdowns together here in Manitoba, just uh, adapting to seeing you sometimes with your cat, sometimes you were in the office, sometimes you were singing to us, sometimes you were playing us music. It was always so fun. Uh, what kind of got you into being so interactive with history? Because a lot of people see it as a dull subject. So how do you bring life to it? That's a really good question. Well, I think the most important thing is to try to find a way to relate history to people's lives. And so I just try to do a little bit of that. So you referenced the music in that American history class, because there's so much great American popular music, right? Um, it, one of the things I do in that class is the song of the day where I try to play a song that somehow relates to the time period. So if you remember, we started, I think my first one was the Yankee Doodle or something, and it, you know, not, a, not exactly a, a top 40 hit these days. And then we moved it all the way by the end. We're playing popular music from the 80s, the 90s and present day. Um, and for me, that's just, yeah, a way to sort of show people that history is something that relates to your uh, your life very directly and that we can bring in uh, arts and culture and music and things like that to help us get in the mood like I remember when we did jazz in the 20s I felt like that just established you know the sort of mood oh absolutely to get into yeah. to talk about the time period so um yeah I, I like to use a pop culture as much as possible I think I do it a lot more in that class than other ones just because American history really lends itself to it oh yeah absolutely there's so much pop culture in American history itself that it's it could be its own uh class subject there in fact I have done a class called history of American pop culture vaudeville to hip-hop which I hope to do again sometime for years I was talking about how this was like my dream class and then one year I got to do a topics course so I picked that as the topic and it was pretty fun yeah 
that would have been so cool. I wish I took that class. <laughs> I love learning about just like the culture and everything because I think it's so relevant to mm -hmm. learning about uh, history is if you're studying more culture than just focusing on wars and mm -hmm. different techniques and different technologies that have come about. If you see how society has evolved culturally, then you can establish what needs to be used going in the future. Well, that was a big moment for me in deciding to become a historian and a history teacher, actually, was the realization when I was at Brandon University as my undergrad, shout out to there, and I had a couple of really inspirational professors who did social history. And just, I, that was, you know, the 90s and social history was still relatively new. And just this idea that, as you say, history isn't just the history of the rich and the powerful, but it's the history of ordinary people and ordinary people's lives. And that just really sort of flipped a switch in my brain when I realized you can study you know, as, as one historian in a book I read put it, you can watch Mickey Mouse Club all day and say that's historical research, right? <laughs> you can look at, at the, the, the parts of people's lives that aren't necessarily big P politics or, you know, diplomatic and military history. You can just look at, well, what was it like to be an ordinary person at this time and place in history? And that's, those are the questions that really sort of excited me because that was why you know i picked history as opposed to other disciplines when i was an undergraduate student was that for me history provided and that's right segue into what we're talking about later for me history provided those answers i was looking for to the questions that i had and the questions were why is the world the way it is why do people act the way they do i mean why is this the world i live in and then when you learn that the world you live in is actually vastly different than the world's most people have lived in through hundreds and thousands of years of human history, then that's for me when it gets really exciting, you know, to, oh, to yeah. say, well, my, my 20th century life is so different than what people's lives were through the centuries. Why? And, and then <laughs> I, that's really started me down a rabbit hole that I've continued the rest of my life, still trying to answer those questions. You know, why is my life the way it is? Well, yeah, absolutely. Like throughout history, you're going to have these key players that are going to be written about in the history books, but they have either an army behind them or a nation behind them of just regular people that yeah. the history is written for and that they are the ones contributing the most to the history that's going on in that time. And if it wasn't for those ordinary people, then there wouldn't be these big key players. Absolutely. There. I remember I was in a graduate seminar one class and somebody was complaining about not having enough political history. And they said, well, I want to learn about the movers and the shakers. <laughs> and somebody else very politely said, well, the ordinary people are recent history <laughs> you know yeah. they are the people moving as you point out right uh you know it's it, napoleon is nothing if he doesn't have millions of people for whatever reason choosing to follow him and then not yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly so, yeah exactly so why do you think that it is important for university kids or people of any background to have a good understanding of history? Well, I always start out this question by saying, if I asked you, and I'll put you on the spot here. So uh, if I asked you to say, who are you? It's one of, one of the biggest questions in life that we all have to answer, right? But without using your name, you'd probably say, I'm, I'm Celeste, or I'd say I'm George. But if you had to say who you were without uh, using your name, what would you what would you say to someone? I would probably self-identify as a, a university student first and foremost. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd say I'm a daughter. I'm a I'm a sister. Uh, mm -hmm. I I am a partner. I I own a business. I'm an entrepreneur. I yeah. There's just a lots of identifying factors other than just my name. And and all those things that make you you. If you think about them all, and I would be very similar, I would probably say, you know, I, exactly, I'm a historian, I'm an ultimate Frisbee player, I'm a you know, fringe performer. All of these things have a story. 
And all of these things, it, um, the other thing I sometimes say is imagine that tomorrow, it's not a very good thing to imagine, but all of your previous memories were gone. You had like the Hollywood amnesia. And, you know, you could still, for some bizarre reason, that's why it's Hollywood amnesia. You could still talk, you still knew English, and somehow you could still interact with society. But all of your specific individual experiences were gone. Who would you be then? And I would argue that you wouldn't be you. You might have the same name, the same signifier, but really the story of who you are, who I am, as you pointed out, when you, you know, and you gave the answer, I was hoping I would care, you would care, <laughs> is it's all, it's all a product of your past experiences. Yeah, right? absolutely. Uh, it, it's all about things that choices you have made or choices that have been made for you. And so my argument is always to know ourselves, to know what makes us, us, you know, what fundamentally makes our consciousnesses, whatever they are, what they are is is the ability to tell a story of the past and where you've been uh if you've ever seen have you ever seen the film memento it's a christopher nolan film no but i it's, love christopher nolan okay well you should check it out it's one of his first ones it came out in 1999 it's one of those films that would completely be wrecked by cellular phones <laughs> i'll explain oh, why no. <laughs> so the premise of memento is this guy does actually have amnesia guy pierce the character and he uh, had his memory, he, is, he, he has all his memories up into a certain point, but after that point, he cannot make new memories. And this is a real condition, apparently, but it's, you know, it's a Hollywood movie, so it's very dramatic. Yeah. And of course, the moment at which his amnesia begins is the moment his wife is murdered. So the know. story of the film is he is trying to solve his wife's murder, but he can't do it by remembering, by making new memories. So he has to instead leave a trail of evidence for himself. He has Polaroid pictures with everybody he knows and on the back is scrolled, trust this person, don't trust this person, so on, so on and so forth. And, uh, he, and eventually when he's very sure of something, he will have a tattoo on, like oh. John G killed my wife and so on. And he seeks to use all of this to piece together the story of everything that's happened since he had amnesia. And what I always say is that that film is essentially the historical process, except we don't just do it as individuals, we do it as societies. As individuals, in order to be able to make good decisions, we have to know what's happened in the past, right? As I said, to know who you are, to know who I am, to answer that question, who am I? And from that question flows, what should I do next? What do I want to do next? We have to constantly be constructing a narrative in our, in, in our own minds about where we've been, why we've been there, and how that causes us to do what we're going to do in the future. So my argument about, back to this original question, I was going to get there eventually, <laughs> is it's not whether we do history or not. We will write history. And every single one of us, every single minute of every day is a historian without realizing it. We are writing the history of our life and we're editing and revising it. And think about how I think about this news of relationships, somebody that you were once very fond of, who you now dislike. I think mean, most of us probably, unfortunately, have something like that in our life. And that shows how narrative changes. Because at one time, the story we would have told ourselves about that person was very different than the story we would tell ourselves now. That's revisionist history, right? Exactly. We're constantly remembering and revising. So my argument is that to be a healthy human being, to be a human being who can exist on planet Earth, you must constantly be writing history. And as a healthy society, we must be doing uh, the same thing. We must constantly be remembering what happened in the past and writing stories that explain why it happened in order to try to make decisions in the future. So for me, uh, the interesting thing about history is it's, it's absolutely essential whether we take an actual history class or not. And hopefully taking a class in history is useful to help with that way of thinking. I say history is, is as much a way of thinking about the world rather than a set of facts or a bunch of stuff that happened in the past. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that, especially within the realm of first year classes in history. As much as it is focused on your certain key events that you're going to be having, it is also focused on the entire historical referencing and just the thinking Mm -hmm. of historical events and how that intertwines with your reality and the realities of Mm -hmm. people around you as a society. Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. Historians think we think in a specific way. And it's the simplistic way to put it is stuff happens because other stuff happens. Causality, (laughs) right? I say the historical question is why, right? In history, there's different approaches. One of the interesting questions that sometimes throw out the students is, well, what's the difference between the past and history? Because I've asked people to define history. Usually I get well, history is like the past. They say, well, there's a lot of approaches to the past. There's nostalgia. You yeah. know, you could have like 90s night at the bar and dress up, but that's not really, <laughs> it's about the past. You're not really doing history. That's like, or there's antiquarianism, you know, collecting antiques and so on. There's a number of, or even um, it's been in the news lately, people debating about commemoration, statues yeah. and all that, you know, and, and we, historians, we often get asked about that. One of the things I always say is, well, I don't really think about that much because historians really aren't all about putting up statues. We're more no. about asking why things happen yeah. than either celebrating or, you know, condemning. at least I think so. And so for me, I've always thought that the history is one approach to the past. There are others and one's necessarily better. Like if really you just want to have fun and the nostalgic, you know, 90s dance party approach to the past is, 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 <laughs> is cool. But if you want to you if you want to look at the past in a way to help you understand the present and make decisions in the future, then you're talking about a historical approach, approach that asks why do things happen? Rather than just taking, you know, all the things you like about the past, putting them in one pile, putting all the things you don't like in another pile going home, which I think is what a lot of people think historians do. Mm-hmm. It's more than that, I think. It can be that, and it's useful to do that, but it's more than that. It's asking ourselves, why have things happened the way they have happened, which is very difficult to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's other, no right yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the um, impossible. I don't know who I'm quoting here, but it's bandied about by a bunch of historians. The impossible necessity of history, right? Yeah. History is, as we talked about earlier, it's ne- it's it's necessary, right? Just to know mm-hmm. who we are, we have to write history. But it's also impossible because this is and this is my my little uh, thing where I try to turn this all around on you. We say history is the study of the past, but history isn't the study of the past, is it? Because have you ever been to the past, Celeste? No, no, I no. wish. <laughs> no, exactly. We all do, of course. We would love the doctor to come along in her TARDIS, or we yeah. would love, you know, uh, exactly. We would love to have a time machine, but we can't. Right? Yeah. If, you're, if you take a chemistry class, you can take chemicals and bring them into class and mix them together, which is my yeah. limited understanding of what you do in chemistry. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're doing biology, you could dissect a cadaver. The thing you're studying can be there with you present in the room. The interesting thing about a history class is what we are studying is never present. No. But instead, what we study, no. Instead, well, you you know, we, we don't. So we don't study the past. We study evidence of the past. Exactly. Right? It's it's like building a puzzle without having yes. the, the finished product. You're like, what pieces go where and why does this fit there? Mm-hmm. Especially within historical research, you're going to find lots of essays and lots of journals that are going to fit the narrative or fit the thesis that you like, but there's also going to be many that claim that they do, but absolutely don't. So it's always mm-hmm. that struggle of finding the right research and the right historical referencing for any given topic that you have. Yeah. So that's back to momentum, right? Because I didn't, I'm going to spoil the film a little bit now, but he doesn't do a very good job of figuring out who killed his wife. And he doesn't do a very good job. And it's a warning for us. It's not that much of a spoiler. Also, the movie came out in 1999. So, you know, everyone's had 22 years to see it. But (laughs) um, what the interesting thing is it shows how the evidence can lie. 
It can yeah. be manipulated or it can simply be incomplete. And so that's the thing that I find really fascinating is we are stuck. All we have to use is, that's why it's the impossible necessity, is evidence of the past. And every piece of evidence, every archival source is in some way limited, mm -hmm. you know, and some people think of this in terms of like real versus fake, you know, forgeries, and there are historical yeah. forgeries and so on. But it's not, it's not that simple. It's more a question of every piece of evidence that's happened to survive has survived for a reason. We were talking yeah. earlier about ordinary people. I mean, why do we have the history of rich and powerful people? Because they leave stuff behind for us to write about. So it's easy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They write their they write their memoirs. Whereas, you know, some random medieval peasant, she hasn't written her diary. She may not have known how to read or write. And so how do we find out what her life was like? Well, we have very limited evidence. Mm -hmm. And so we have to infer and we have to. And so this is one of the, the sort of challenges that when we're studying the evidence of the past and even the evidence we do have, because sometimes I have students say, well, what about uh, what about video? You know, I mean, that doesn't <laughs> lie. And uh, I would say, well, it does. The example I give of that is the uh, I remember during the Iraq war, which now all my students are, are too young to remember. But the iconic we all saw in 2003, this iconic film that was broadcast on CNN and CBC and everywhere else of a huge crowd of jubilant Iraqis filling a square, and pulling down a statue of Saddam Hussein. I don't know if this is something mm -hmm. that you remember that resonates. No, but... I would have been okay. five years old. <laughs> well, <laughs> and this was, of course, used to fit a certain narrative. And the narrative, mm -hmm. of course, it was implied was, you know, this is a popular invasion and America has won, Bush and his mission accomplished and all that. And of course, that turned out not to be the case. And the interesting thing was, while that video was circulating very wildly, there, widely, there was another, now you remember, this is before social media. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have access to stuff like this. Today, that wouldn't have happened. Today, there's a, so there was another picture. And this picture was taken, it was a still photograph taken from somebody in the Palestine Hotel overlooking the square. Mm -hmm. And this wide angle shot showed that there were only a few a few dozen at most people in the entire square the entire square was empty with mm -hmm. a few people huddled around the statue tearing it down at the behest of the u.s army or marines or whichever whoever it was who had actually staged this entire event as a as a propaganda photo op and that most mm -hmm. iraqis were actually huddled in their homes afraid to come out and and this just shows you again how the camera can lie, right? By showing mm -hmm. a close-up of a small yep. group of people. It's the same thing filmmakers do it all the time. Oh, absolutely. You just show 10 people in the stands and your brain fills in the rest and says, oh, that's a full stadium. You yeah. don't actually need to hire 20,000 extras. And the interesting thing about this is, yeah, it was, and so that led to a very different conclusion. And of course, mm -hmm. it being 2003, not everybody saw this second picture. And if yeah. they had, perhaps they would have had a very different idea of what was going to come next in Iraq. Exactly. than they had otherwise. So it's a perfect example of how often it's a case of selection. It's mm -hmm. not that one of these uh, two pictures was a lie or was, although one of them was very carefully stage managed. Mm -hmm. It's that, it's that uh, any piece of evidence has a perspective, right, that it comes from. And so the challenge, I guess, for us is to, first of all, the, is to overcome the fact that the record of evidence is incomplete. Sometimes there yeah. just isn't a piece of evidence that talks about the things we're interested in history. Have you've mm -hmm. ever had that when you're writing history paper. Oh, yep. <laughs> and <laughs> well, you're digging you know, through every sort of library and you're like, I can't find anything on this topic. Exactly. Well, what are your, what's your reaction to that when that happens? How do you, how does oh, that make you feel? I, I have like a little mental breakdown and then I try and find a book and then I go through the reference list of the book and I was like, okay, hey, what are they sourcing? Where can I find sources? Mm. Yeah. I mean, and at some point you're going to discover that, yeah, there are just some things that people haven't written about. And imagine, mm -hmm. you know, that was, especially when social history came out in the sixties and seventies, there were entire groups of people who found, who found 
you know, women, indigenous people, working class people, people of color who went to, they had the same experience and found that literally there was nothing about people like that. Exactly. There was nothing being written because the people who were writing history were writing about the things they were interested in. And since mm -hmm. they were, you know, upper class, yeah. white, affluent men, they tended to write about people like them who they thought were interesting. You know, yeah. so that's the neat, that's the fascinating thing. We're still always, you know, discovering as you are mm -hmm. <laughs> that those bookshelves aren't full of everything we want to know about the past, that there are no, exactly. gaps. Yeah. And then it's, and, and so I find that's very empowering, don't you? That, that to know yeah. that it's, you know, y your job is to fill in those gaps, you know, exactly. and then you have to do the research. Maybe not, you won't have as big an opportunity as an undergraduate, but if you continue in historical study, that is eventually, mm -hmm. and that's what we do as historians, right? Is we go looking for evidence of things we want to write about, knowing full well that we're never going to have all the evidence. And so that's why, and this is the big thing that I want to try to get across to listeners today, is that that's why history is always an incomplete process, right? Yeah. It's, it's never finished. No. You know? And it's, and nor is it, you know, I'm showing up and telling you what history is and you're just listening and writing it down. It's something we do together. And as a mm -hmm. student of history, you have just as much ability to write history as I do, even exactly. though I'm the one who's got, who's grading the papers and got doctor in front of my name. That yeah. doesn't make, that doesn't make me an authority on historical truth. It just makes me somebody who's a good guide for yeah. helping other people discover historical truth. Well, yeah, exactly. I always think about that when I'm writing papers. I think about the professor or the TA that has to read 30 papers on the same topic. It's just like, how can I spin this or how can I take a different look at this history? So it's not the same as 30 other students' papers. And we appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> as somebody who has marked 30 papers on the same topic, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it can get a little bit, but I, I find sometimes I, uh, I shouldn't say this, but uh, I have to work very hard to make sure that I read every single paper as a separate piece of work and not be yeah. like, oh, you've done this five times already. And then I realized, oh no, this is five different people. Uh, <laughs> anyway, you're going to cut that out, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> But yeah, it's that, and that is that is also, I think, getting down to it, what we try to get across to uh, students that it, it's very much a, a discipline that you have to bring a lot of yourself to, uh, and we hope that people do because everybody's um, so since it is a product of selection, right? It's a yeah. question of choosing sources. No mm -hmm. two people would ever happen to think the same two things were important or the same two sources were important and no two people would interpret sources the same way. So that's, you know, the idea that we can't study the past, we can only study evidence of the past leads to all those issues of historical truth. How do we know exactly. it's true, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and that just plays into the big era of revisionist history that we're in. And it's been a lot of uh, disregarding or just not taking into full consideration the colonial history that we were all taught growing up in high schools and in middle schools, where your textbook only has one race in it. And you're not learning about everything that had happened in your country. Whereas now we are seeing a lot of, especially in today, where we have the residential school survivors and all of mm -hmm. the horrors and genocides that were coming out of that as part of Canada's history, whereas before it was separate. Yeah, I mean, there, there's always this discussion. People use the word revisionist history a lot. Sometimes they use it as an insult for, for whatever history they don't like. But the fact is that that's what history is, is revisionism, mm -hmm. and it always has been. In this case, it's a necessary revision to discover or rediscover uh, evidence of the past. In this case, narratives of survivors, like you say, yep. that was discounted 
or yeah. wasn't people didn't work hard enough to find because they didn't care to. So yeah, yeah, we're constantly in a process of rediscovering new information. And as we do, we have to revise history. And for me, that's the fun of it. It wouldn't be, mm -hmm. I, I always jokingly say that, okay, so my textbook is called a history of world societies. Mm -hmm. And my joke is, well, what, what, what word do I think is the most important word in that textbook? Mm -hmm. A history of world societies. It's actually, ah, so <laughs> that's really weird. it's the preposition because yeah. I, when I grew up, I read a bunch of books and they said the history, yeah. the history of the world. You think, well, that's very arrogant, right? Yeah. <laughs> <It's> very, <laughs> this is the history, the only yeah. one, and I am right. Whereas if you just change that to ah, yeah, then you're 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 saying a world. You're saying yeah. so much by that. You're saying mm -hmm. this is a history. This is my history, mm -hmm. right? And it may not be. We may not agree in the end, and that's where I think I always uh, say to students when you're writing a paper, the secret is find historians fighting. And they yep. always fight in very nice, passive aggressive academic oh, ways. Yeah. We'll see in the footnotes, <laughs> you know. But whenever you can find historians fighting and disagreeing, that's that, then you have a paper. And that's mm -hmm. what historians do, right? They read each other's work and then they revise it based on not only different evidence, but different ways of interpreting that evidence, different ideas of what's important. And for me, that's always been what makes history fun and what makes it a really exciting discipline to work in. Is and I also think very empowering because then Hopefully, as a history student, you come in again, not thinking, I went to I went to university and got told the way the world is by a smart person with some letters yeah. after their name. Instead, I went to university and I learned how to discover what truth is for me. I learned exactly. how to discover how to read very smart people's work and decide what I think about, about it, which is really the most important thing, more than remembering any facts or figures, especially these days when, you know, I mean, even when I started out in university. We didn't have the ability to collect all human knowledge on you know, yeah. something that fits in the palm of our hand. Uh, you know, yeah. there was there was a certain usefulness for mm -hmm. people who just memorized a lot of facts. Yeah, I would if you can remember all the dates of every oh, yeah. president, and it's just yeah. like, what? Who yeah. needs that trivia knowledge anymore? You don't. You don't. And I say this as somebody who 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 was a Jeopardy contestant and he was very good at <laughs> trivia. This is sort of my thing. This will be the yeah. only thing that's remembered about me. I die is that I'm a trivia guy and, and it's useless. It's a totally useless talent. That's not what makes me a smart person is the fact that these random facts get stuck and roll around in my head somewhere. Cause honestly, I could just look them up. Yeah. I think what makes me valuable as a, as a history instructor is my ability to, you know, talk about the things we're talking about today about how do we take these facts and make them make sense for us and turn them yeah. into narrative, weave them into narratives that answer the questions we want to know. So, well, yeah. that's exactly it. It's all about narratives and interpretation. Like we could read the mm -hmm. same article and totally interpret it different ways. We're both looking for mm -hmm. different parts of the history. We're mm -hmm. focusing on different aspects of what the author is saying. But at the end of the day, we've both read the same article. And which I think that's amazing about history is you can have two people that have the same background, the same knowledge of historical mm -hmm. events, and they're go both going to pull out different information from the same text. Yeah, that's one of the great, um, the other thing I like about history is it touches on so many different disciplines. And so you learn, you take from different, and one of the things I think that we learn from literature is that sort of modernist, or some people would call it postmodernist uh, insight that the text exists somewhere between the author and the, and the reader, right? I was saying, I was just saying this in my class today, actually, there is no, just using a book that most of us have probably read, there is no Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter only exists when you read it. 
Yep. And there is Celeste's Harry Potter and there's George's Harry Potter and they're not the same, nope. you know, and, and, and so the old, the old school way of thinking this was no, the author intended, you know, and, yeah. and so that very simple, almost simplistic literary insight applies to what you were saying as well. So when, when we have a historical article that we read, we act like we read the same article, but we actually didn't. Because no. the article isn't something sitting on a piece of paper. The article is something that exists in each one of our minds that we mm -hmm. created, we brought into being. Now, it doesn't mean, now some people have trouble with that in history because they feel like this means maybe we're just making it all up, right? If you say, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know every, everybody's interpretation is valid, everybody's perspective is okay. Does that mean that there's no, you can't say, no, that's false. You can't say, no, this actually happened. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's true because it's not as if, we're making up the article just out of the blue. No. The article might be, you know, the article you read and the article my, I read might be different because we brought our own experiences and our own past to it and so on. Mm -hmm. But there still is, a, there is, there still is some objective truth and reality that we're working. Now we're getting more to philosophy, but <laughs> that's, that's the thing that I, that I find interesting too, is, you know, we can, we can still decide there are historical truths Mm -hmm. But the key is how do we arrive at and do we arrive at them through some sort of dogmatic approach where there is somebody who is uh, qualified to tell us what the truth is and we receive it or do we establish truths through a sort of dialogic process of, as you said, yeah. saying, well, what did, what did, what was your interpretation of this source? What was your interpretation of this article? Yeah. And I think it's the latter. So we can, we can still say for people who are worried out there, we still can say there are things that happened. There yeah. are historical truths <laughs> yeah. but, <laughs> that we can agree upon, but it's that we, that we, we can agree on that because as reasonable, uh, rational people, we're all, we're able to make certain agreement in some areas and then in others we won't. And that's also the beauty of any history classes. When you get a diverse group of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, it's always mm -hmm. so much better because you will have people who bring a perspective to what you're reading that other people in the room will never have considered before exactly and that, well and that's and the whole point of it you're going to have great collaboration within a classroom because mm -hmm. you're going to have one student that's super involved in medieval history and another student that's involved mm -hmm. in modern history and they will have a great debate in classroom about a certain topic and it's just broadening the horizons and the theories to mm -hmm. everyone that's involved with that discussion and everybody will have some personal life experience that whatever they're reading about relates to even if it seems very far away and that's another nice thing that I think about history is the sort of universalism mm -hmm. of the human experience that simultaneously our very diversity and our very broad range of experiences brings us back to the truth that it's incredible how we we can still understand these people as strange they say the past is a foreign country as strange as people in say ancient Rome might appear to us and the things they do we still see us and ourselves in them. And that's what I find really fascinating. As, as, as far as foreign a country as we encounter, the farther back we go, mm -hmm. these people are still human and they still mm -hmm. have all the same ways of thinking. One of the things that I read that was really interesting once was that um, human evolution hasn't really occurred in the last, in, in, the, in the time period of at least 5,000 years or uh, of, of human you know, history, recorded mm -hmm. human history. Um, human beings have been what they've been all the way since we were hunter-gatherers to the present day, yeah. uh, biologically. That means they were every bit as intelligent. They were every mm -hmm. bit, I mean, and so that's, when you think about that, that's really fascinating, that every mm -hmm. single person you encounter through history 
is more or less us yep. from a genetic evolutionary point of view. Yeah, uh, biological though, standpoint. <laughs> you know, some of them are believing in witches and that seems yeah. a little weird, but, <laughs> but we that's but I'm sure in, in, in a thousand years, people will look back at many of our beliefs and yeah. think they're equally yeah. ludicrous as to some of the exactly. beliefs. And so for me, that's always, it's fascinating and also comforting to realize that we are studying people who are like us, even if the things they do and the things they believe in um, seem very difficult at times for us to understand. Well, yeah, and that's the whole thing about history. It's not just about events. It's not just about places. It's about the entire historical background of society. You have human history, you have event history, you're going to have lots of these different forms of histories, but at the end of the day, you can form a greater narrative or narratives off of the overarching theme. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, yeah, so that's, that's why I, I get so excited about uh, <laughs> teaching and so I hope to get across to students is that, uh, you know, whether you're in a classroom or not, uh, this is something that the rest of your life you can you can be, you know, has something of value to give to you to start think like a historian to think in a historical way mm-hmm. about what causes this and why people are the way they are at certain times and places and so on, even if it's different than the way you are now. You know, there's always there's always that. I always find it fascinating the uh, ways in which sometimes one part of history connects with somebody's present day in a way you don't expect um, exactly like w- one of the ones that i always uh, use in class is say if you want to understand you know uh, the royal court in times of like absolute monarchy like louis louis Catours and stuff and you know how your status in life is based upon how well you flatter the king and, and how well yeah. you're liked and you have to go around dueling people if they you know impugn your reputation i say well just watch mean girls it's basically <laughs> It's basically the same thing. Yep. <laughs> Can't argue that with matters, that. Yeah. All that matters is your reputation. You know, there's a queen and, and yeah. you have to, if you're on the wrong side of the queen, it's disastrous for you. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, how we, we can look at these things and say, okay, European nobles, they seem a strange lot, but actually they're kind of just like, you know, kids in a teen movie. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that even happened to me when I was in high school, I would have, you know, people come up to me and insult me and I was expected to fight them to, for my honor. And then years yeah. later, I'm reading about, about, you know, dueling. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I this is bringing back a lot of memories of grade nine. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You're like, I so, don't like this deja vu moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's always fascinating how, how the little, the little, little personal interpersonal relationships we have today, we can always find them analogous to some sort of uh, something we learn about in history or in the past. Absolutely. Well, I have a loaded question for you that I okay. love asking historians. Do okay. you believe that the past repeats itself? Well, I've heard, and again, I, I need to start attributing my quotes properly, but I've heard somebody <laughs> say that past history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I, I, I like that one. Yeah. Um, you know, you also have, you have Karl Marx who said, uh, history repeats itself. The first time is tragedy. The second time is farce. Mm-hmm. And I think I agree with both of those. So I do believe that history to some degree repeats itself, but never exactly the same way and not always the ways we expect it to. So sometimes we're, we're, we're looking for history to repeat itself literally mm-hmm. and, it, and, it, and, it, and instead it just rhymes. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think, because I, I think that the reason for that is that the same uh, causal factors that are driving history forward, the same human wants, the same human desires, uh, the, are, are, are present, right? The desire to construct 
uh, try to construct a best society that provides more in the way of the basic necessities of life, food, clothing, and shelter, but also uh, fulfillment, happiness. Those drives that we have as human beings have existed. Uh, whether it's you know Genghis Khan trying to subdue all of the peoples of Asia just in order to have his own safety and security of his, I was reading a book about Genghis Khan recently and the, and the guy had a, a terrible life growing up. His, his <laughs> wife was kidnapped by rival tribes. He, uh, per, uh, his, his father was killed. He just had this incredibly violent life where all of those nearest and dearest to him are, are attacked because he's living in this world on the, on the Asian steppe where it's basically one uh, group against another fighting for the very meager resources that have. And his solution to this is if I can become the most powerful person in the world, if I can destroy my enemies, then that will never happen to me again. Mm -hmm. And again, the immediate thing I thought of was the movie The Godfather, one of my favorite movies, <laughs> which is the same thing. So that's just yep. the, because what 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 is the story of uh, Vito Corleone, if not somebody who, as a small child, has his family murdered? Actually, this is more Godfather Two, but anyway. Um, <laughs> And by the way, as far as I'm concerned, there are only two Godfather films. I don't acknowledge oh. the third one exists, but anyway. Oh. Um, but basically, it's, yeah, it's the same story. It's, it's, it's a kid who has his family murdered, who decides, and they even you know, spell it out in The Godfather, I want to be the one holding the strings. That's the famous yep. quote from the film. I need to, and of course, I was thinking, well, people throughout history have done this. They mm -hmm. have pursued power mm -hmm. as a means of finding security of a means. So I'm thinking that, you know, uh, uh, Vito Corleone and Genghis Khan are made cut from the same cloth. They're people who believe that if I was only the most powerful person there was and others were afraid of me, then I could be strong and protect my family. And of course, for both of them, it falls apart when their sons fight over it. But anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, it's ironic. so that is this. So yeah, I do believe history repeats in those ways because the, 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 fundamental, I'm trying to think of a better word, but I'm just going to say things that people are trying to accomplish in life don't necessarily change. It's just the ways they try to do uh, try to do them. Uh, now, sometimes people ask that question in terms of, well, do we learn from our mistakes? Is it possible mm -hmm. to avoid it? And I do believe people learn from history, although they don't necessarily learn the same thing. Great example of that was a few years ago when they were talking about to, to Bush, George W. Bush, and they were talking about what was happening in Iraq and saying, you know, didn't you learn anything from Vietnam? And although I think Vietnam is much more Afghanistan than Iraq, but anyway, <laughs> the obvious analogy was there, American foreign policy adventurism yep. that, that turns badly in the face of guerrilla insurgency. And, and Bush said, yes, I did learn from the lessons of Vietnam. Reporters were kind of surprised. He said, well, the problem with Vietnam, he, Bush argued, he said, was that we could have won, but we lost the will to do it and we quit too soon. And so the lesson learned from Vietnam is never give up. And of course, I just sort of pace palm because I don't mm -hmm. think as a historian, the lesson from the Vietnam War is don't ever give up. No, thank you. Yes, exactly. And, but it just shows what we learn. So depending, you know, other historians have learned that the lesson is don't go around trying to force a group of people to adopt a certain ideology when they don't want to, and that that mm -hmm. sort of thing generally doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, there might be other lessons too about imperialism, or uh, there's a number of historical lessons you can draw from uh, Vietnam. Don't give up not being one of my top five. But no. that, I always thought that was fascinating because Bush, and to be fair, he was a C student, so he was anyway. Uh, <laughs> but his, his, so maybe he didn't learn history that well at Yale. Sorry, I shouldn't pick on him, but. Um, <laughs> It just shows you that, yes, people do learn from history, but the challenge is to learn the right thing. 
and, and, and to know what the right thing is when you're learning it, because often people expect history to repeat itself exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. And of course, it never does. There's always there's always something that's that that's unique about the situation. So it's it's a tricky business trying to learn lessons from history and trying to be. And I always say we should be very cautious and careful about being so sure that what we're seeing is history repeating or history repeating in a certain way. Um, but I sort of say that in general as a as a historian that um, we're we're spectacularly bad at predicting the future. <laughs> you know, we uh, during the Russian Revolution, one of the um, uh, Arginal was it was in Italy. Never mind. It was one of the Italian Marxists. I think it might have been Gramsci, who famously said, when asked why they weren't doing more to you know lead the revolution, said, "We uh, don't, uh, we don't. What was the phrase? We don't make history. We analyze it." Mm. <laughs> it's about historians, you know, it's it's risky for us to to go around telling people what we should do in the future. We're exactly. on much safer ground when we analyze it. But of course, people want to know. Yeah. And of course, we all have to to some degree as well, right? We all don't have the choice but to, you know, so I have people come to me in my history of capitalism course, for example, and say, like, oh, geez. well, George, tell me what's, tell me what's going to happen in the economy for the next year. And I yeah, say, yeah, which well, stock should I buy? Yeah, exactly. I have had <laughs> almost exactly that, you know, and, and I'm like, well, I could tell you three or four different possibilities based on what we've seen in the past, but I'm not mm-hmm. confident enough to say. And I think lots of historians who have tried to predict the future have, have become notoriously wrong. So yeah. maybe it's just a cop out for us, but um, I'm, we, we always have to be careful to think that, uh, that knowing about the past predicts, enables us to exactly predict the future because of that. Exactly. Well, and that plays into our discussion on interpretation. It's it's the same thing. If we're going to mm-hmm. see and learn from our past, we're going to learn different mm-hmm. things from our past. It's just as if we were to make a mistake, we're going to learn different things from each of our own mistakes, yeah. even though they are the same mistake. Exactly. And so what I always tell students is I hope that history teaches us to make better decisions because mm-hmm. that's all we can be do rather than predicting results. It's not that I don't think history is useful for making a better future. I very much think it does. I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't think the only way to create a better future for ourselves was to study history. It's just, it's not as simple as being able to say, well, I've learned history. Now I know what's going to happen. I can predict it. Exactly. Um, it's more It's more the case of I've learned history. And so hopefully I can make better decisions for myself. And hopefully as society, we can make better decisions uh, collectively having seen mistakes from the past and so on. Exactly. So you don't want to put your your life on any sort of future predictions for what could happen? No, I don't. Although I do I do still insufferably take credit for predicting the 2008 financial crisis. The only oh. problem is I was predicting it for about five years before it actually happened. So I don't think I could, I think I'm just a Cassandra. I don't oh. think that's predicting the future. That's just being pessimistic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Warning people about speculative uh, bubbles in world, in global finance. But exactly. I didn't, I, I certainly, so you could definitely, actually it's a perfect example, not just me, but I got it from the people I read, obviously. So I was mm-hmm. reading a number of uh, global political economists who were, who are saying, you know, the fundamental basis of our economy under neoliberalism is not particularly sound and it's going to set us mm-hmm. up for a crash. That doesn't mean I knew exactly where money was going to happen. Yeah. Because that's a perfect example of that. We can look at patterns, I think, in mm-hmm. history. We can see pro- historical processes unfolding. And we can certainly say, I think this is a bad idea that at some point might go wrong. But we're not, you know, we're not prognosticators. We're more there to, to encourage people to, to think about, well, what decisions should that I make? Because that's all that really matters. Right is the uh, and that's another big theme in, in history is agency, right? Mm-hmm. Every single one of us has human agency to exercise, and I think history is one of the most helpful tools we have in exercising that agency, which is all we can do. 
Exactly. Well, do you have any more final thoughts for future students wanting to take history courses or for anyone that just wants to broaden their horizons on the historical process? Do it. <laughs> take a history <laughs> course. I mean, I might be preaching to the, the choir if this is the History Students Association podcast, but yeah, and, and encourage your friends. Take uh, If you're taking that, that arts elective or if you're taking an elective course, I think a history class, even if you only take one, is incredibly useful and helpful because um, that can lead to a lifelong of discovery of history on your own after. And I think that's the most important thing. It's not just about what happens in the classroom. Uh, when I first got interested in history, I was a little kid and my parents had a number of history books in the basement. And I remember very distinctly reading them cover to cover. And I, I would have never thought, you know, that when I was 10 or 11 years old, that this is what I would end up being doing, devoting my, my career, my life towards. Mm -hmm. But it was, it started with me just being in, just being so fascinated in these books. And I, and that's, that's my message that I would have to students going forward is if you're interested in the past, take a history course, but don't stop there. Uh, watch historical movies and then go and find out what did that movie change? Is that an accurate, you know, yeah. read, read, read novels set in the past and just engage, engage your entire life in learning more and more about the past. Because history, I think, is one of the most accessible subjects uh, mm -hmm. for people to learn. Uh, you know, it's, it's something you can, in your summer reading, you can, you can read a book of history. But do take that course, because that course <laughs> will, I think, help you when you do read history, or you watch a YouTube channel uh, my latest thing in my classes is to do YouTube channel reviews because there's a lot of really neat history channels on YouTube. Uh, and yeah. I hear more of my students, that's increasingly where their knowledge of history is coming from. Yeah. So yeah, take take definitely take a history class in university because you'll 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 experience some incredibly intelligent, uh, smart, uh, interesting people as professors that will make you think about how do I interact with the past but then keep doing it the rest of your life. That's always my encouragement. Well, yeah, exactly. Like just going off of your topic there of the YouTube videos, like I know for myself, my first year history class, I was devoted and subscribed to the Green Brothers and their Crash Course World History okay. on YouTube. And I was like, how do I learn this material? Because I don't understand anything that I'm doing, but they put it into simple latent terms mm -hmm. that anyone that has good literacy can understand mm -hmm. yeah right now i'm uh, really into uh world war ii week by week it's by a oh. group called time ghost and they they do it like it's a news show and they're doing it over five years the entirety of the second or i guess six years the entirety of the second world war and they're telling you what happened this week i guess right now this would be the first week of august 1942 uh, and that's i just a really neat approach yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating and they look at it from a number of levels. It's not just a military history show. There's also a lot of the social history and they'll talk about, you know, well, what's going on in Hungary this week? What's going on mm -hmm. on the Eastern Front? And in America, Roosevelt said this, and it's a fascinating way to do it because it really brings, when you, especially when you do it, I don't watch everyone, but if you do it week by week, mm -hmm. it really gives you the ability to do something that's hard to get across in history, which is to really imagine what it would have been like to live through you know, uh, many, many long years of such yeah. a difficult time in history <laughs> to realize, wow, there was, there was a lot going on. And, and it was, you know, quite the, to, to go on the ride in real time rather yeah. than skipping to the end is just a neat way to deliver history. So there's so many possibilities out there now uh, with the internet and YouTube uh, that wouldn't have been possible. You know, I don't think anybody would have ever done a, 
you know, what, what, several hundred part <laughs> documentary yeah. series on World War II. But that's essentially what these people are doing. And it's really interesting. So. Well, yeah, you get like a real time, almost play by play of what would mm -hmm. have been happening in the mm -hmm. 1940s, but now mm -hmm. you're experiencing it in the modern age yeah. and you're d getting it delivered in a system that you're used to. And you're getting one of the neat things that I find about history. It's so important is to, I always tell students, um, remember people don't know how things end. I think that's one of the hardest things I have in studying history. I know how it ends. Mm -hmm. So if, it's hard to understand what it would have been like in Britain in 1940, you know, when all of continental Europe has been overrun by Hitler, because mm -hmm. we know it's going to be okay. You know, yeah. we know Hitler's going to get defeated. Yeah. But to, to be able to really put yourself in the mentality of somebody who's living through that, that time, I think that's one of our hardest challenges. History is in many ways an act of imagination. Mm -hmm. It were and, and that's the other great thing that history provides. I was going to talk about that when you get a chance, is empathy and imagination. Uh, and those are, I think, for any human being on planet Earth, one of the most, two of the most important things you can have. In fact, might be the most two important attributes that I would say people should have. Mm -hmm. And I think if more people had more empathy and more imagination, the world would be a much better place. But, and history does that mm -hmm. because you cannot understand history unless you have the ability to abstractly imagine what it's like to be someone else. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right. And, and so uh, one of the hardest things about history is, yeah, they don't know how this ends. Yep. And so sometimes it's easier for us to judge them based on, oh, they shouldn't have been worried about that, or they should have done this, or they should have done that. We're realizing, well, at the time, they're working only with the information at that point. And so a series like that that goes slowly and methodically through a big historical event sort of reminds you of that, that mm -hmm. at the time, you don't have the benefit of, of hindsight. You are, and so it's important to imagine and empathize with people who are going through that and imagine how that influenced the choices they made. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have one final question for you, Professor okay. Beery. Uh, given your background of historical theories and analogies and referencing, what would be your recommendation for the Anthropocene moving forward? My recommendation for the, you mean like in terms of, a human's ability to manipulate the environment and that sort of thing and just humans in general and how they <laughs> should be moving forward how they should be moving forward i don't know that's that's another one of those questions that i might have to punt on and just say i'm just a mere historian and i describe the past but i i think one of the most important uh things in general is that we are a connected world today mm -hmm. in in most of human history, you maybe knew a thousand. Like, think about that. Before, certainly mm -hmm. before the Industrial Revolution, how many people would you ever meet in your life? And how different would those people be from yourself? Mm -hmm. You know, probably not. I mean, I'm imagining myself, you know, like a 13th century peasant in China. Mm -hmm. And everybody I meet is going to be probably also a peasant or yep. my landlord or somebody. And they're probably going to roughly be a lot like me. I'm not going to meet somebody from Latin America. That's impossible. We haven't mm -hmm. connected the world yet. And so today, the advantage we have over previous generations of human beings is the fact that we have the ability to know what other people's lives are like that are very different than ours. Uh, and uh, that's a blessing and a curse because the curses, I think Slavoj Zizic talks about this, the curse uh, within a modern capitalist society of infinite wants, right? We are encouraged to want infinite things that we can never obtain. I would mm -hmm. like to have 50 lifetimes to try out all these different ways of life that I now know exist. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'd only known that if everybody I knew, the thousand people I'd ever meet in my life, all roughly lived about the same life I lived, I wouldn't know what I was missing. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the curse of modern civilization is to know what one is missing, mm -hmm. right? To know that there are so many other possibilities, but that's also a great advantage because we have a capacity we haven't had up until this point in history to be able to uh, know about so many other people's lives and to use that knowledge to make decisions about how we want to live ours. So I'm going to end off as an optimist versus a pessimist. I mean, this is my whole life story is one part of me just thinks we're doomed. And if you look at the history of humanity, it's yeah. just all these terrible things we've done. And then the other side of me looks at all the brilliant and amazing things in the world and what we've accomplished as well. And is that duality that I'm constantly torn towards. So uh, I'm going to leave off an optimistic note and say that I think what we should do going forward is take that interconnectivity and try to use it as a blessing rather than a curse. Mm -hmm. And to try to use the fact that we have more knowledge at our fingertips than we've ever had before to think that that should enable us to be able to make better decisions. So hopefully that's the case. <laughs> I like that. That's a great way to end off here. All right. uh, just to wrap everything up, do you by chance know what classes you're going to be teaching this next year I, I, I i'm not sure i should say because the whole appointment and everything is still going through the process of being officially approved and whatnot but okay. uh, i i will be probably doing like normal a, a couple of uh, first year intro to world history in the past i've taught world 1500 to 1800 and 1800 to present so i think mm -hmm. there's probably a good chance of doing that and it also looks like there'll be a good chance I'll be getting back into Canadian history, which is actually my major field, but I haven't taught for a number of years, probably a first year survey, a course as well. And then there uh, should be a couple of specialized ones. So if anybody wants to take an intro to history course, I should be uh, teaching that. But, Excellent. Well, I have a lot of friends right. that I can recommend into those <laughs> courses. But that would be great. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Professor. Uh, right. I, I wish you good luck in the fall. And thank you so much for being on this podcast today. Well, thank you very much. And I just want to say I think this is a fantastic idea that the History Club is doing this. And I've enjoyed listening to the other podcasts in the series. So thank you very much for doing this. And uh, please keep on with it. It's a very fascinating idea. Yeah, excellent. I hope we can have All you right. on again. That would be great. Right. Excellent. Thank, thank you. you so much. Have a good night.